Election Studio on Cambridge 105 Radio. In nine days' time, the city and South Cambridgeshire will vote in the most important general election in a generation. Eight candidates are standing in Cambridge, three in South Cambridgeshire. And over the next week and a half, we're speaking to them all. Good morning, I'm Julian Clover. Welcome to Election Studio, your next MP. This morning, I was joined live by Anthony Brown. He's been a journalist, worked for the Today programme, and was part of Boris Johnson's team when he was Mayor of London. Um, Anthony, good morning. Thank good you morning. very much uh, for coming in uh, to see us. What sort of Conservative are you? Well, I describe myself as a one-nation Conservative, uh, that I believe it's important for the Conservative Party and the Conservative government to make sure it represents everyone, whatever their walk of life. So whether you're an unemployed person who's trying to find work, get them onto the work ladder, a student trying to get their first job, a single mum uh, struggling to make ends meet, a hard-working family uh, just trying to get by, an entrepreneur who's trying to build up his or her business mm. uh, into the greatest success. It, it's interesting. I've, it seems to be that the one-nation term is re re-emerging uh, again we we used to hear it and now it seems to be if you like coming coming well, back into fashion well if you look at the the policies of the conservative party I and mean, the the you know people have their own views on brexit one way or another but you look at mm. the rest of the domestic agenda which we're keen to get ahead with uh it's investment in the nhs it's investment in schools uh investment in police it's a very uh sort of middle ground political middle ground uh agenda i've, I've read a piece by michael heseltine who said it was uh, simply not possible to be a one nation conservative and also pursue a little Englander strategy, as he put it, obviously crafted to appeal to the likes of Nigel Farage and his followers. It's interesting, it may not apply to you, but Lord Heseltine says that Boris Johnson's description of himself as a Brexity Hezer, um, in something which doesn't seem to have been denied. Sorry, who's a Brexity Hezer? Uh, 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 that's what Boris, uh, the Prime Minister, has, has apparently described himself as, a Brexity Hezer. So all, yeah. I guess, the softer conservative I mean, characteristics yeah. of Lord Hesseltine, and, uh, but going ahead with Brexit. Yeah, I mean, my, Michael Hesseltine's obviously a great, great politician and, uh, you know, been a great statesman in his time. He's obviously opposed to Brexit and that's what's dominating his thoughts at the moment. But mm -hmm. then again, the rest of the domestic agenda, uh, you know, he was again a sort of a one-nation Conservative. Yeah. Uh, we'll come on to that agenda, but obviously I do have to kind of start with well, the I Brexit, Brexit for, questions. For me, politics, I mean, it's, it's really important that the Conservative Party is a party that offers anyone who aspires, who wants to get ahead in life, that actually we, we can help them. Well, the role of the government is to help people get, get on with their lives mm -hmm. and get, get ahead with their lives. And that's having a stepladder. So people, that's uh, having a good education system to make sure that everyone has the best possible start in life, uh, but also to have a safety net so that when people do fall behind and they can't help themselves, that actually there's a welfare state there and indeed a health service uh, to help them. But it's I, really important. I'm like Margaret Thatcher appealed to people across the uh, you know social divides and economic divides, the sort of working mm. class Tories, as it were, who liked a lot of her policies. And I think it's important that uh, the Conservative Party now has messages for ev everyone or policies for everyone uh, who just wants to get ahead with their life. But you do have to sign, as I understand it, they're sort of get Brexit done pledge to make sure, I presume, yeah. that when the, the Parliament is reformulated after the election, if Mr Johnson has a majority, then all of his MPs go through the correct lobby and not this which way are they going to go noticed, which we've seen yeah, in previous yeah, previous yeah, months. I noticed the parties had a slight problem with the rebellions. I mean, the, the, the 
But presumably that means that when the selection process comes along, the local associations want to get uh, someone who's close to Boris's view. When I I was selected, 100 people applied and we went through sort of a rigorous process. And as it happens, it was before Boris Johnson was party leader. I was selected when Theresa May was a party leader. Uh, uh, I wasn't actually asked that question. But yes, I'm, I'm... so on do you Brexit, have to sign something Brexit. since? Do you get a little note in, you know, in the well, post I, I saying, I, I signed up for this? I was, I was phoned up. So there's nothing I written. Phoned. There's just a, just a verbal contract, That's, if you like, yeah. between you there's, and Tory there's HQ. Nothing, nothing in writing. Okay. The, the, um, on Brexit, though, uh, obviously, is a, I'm trying to campaign on local, local issues, and I've been knocking on thousands of doors since I lo- first came on this programme about four months ago, uh, really talking about local issues, but clearly there is this national issue, Brexit. Uh, and I, everyone says we're divided as a country. Actually, we're not. We're completely united and being completely fed up with it. Uh, and I think we just... My position is really the um, democratic one, that actually we did have a referendum, we did have a... It did have a result. All the main political parties at the time, including Labour and Lib Dem, said they'd respect the results of the referendum back at the time. Uh, and then we had a general election, the last one, and 80% of MPs were elected on manifesto commitments to deliver Brexit. It hasn't happened. I think we just need to, for the sake of democracy, get get on and mm. do it so, in, so the, back in the best possible way. So back in 2016, where, where did your vote go? Did it go to stay or did it go to I, leave? Be, I, to, to be honest, I'm entirely very split on Brexit. I mean, I'm, I'm intensely pro-European. I'm mm. half, uh, as it happens, I'm half Norwegian. I'm part Irish, part French. I was Europe correspondent at the Times. I lived out in Brussels. It's where my children were born. I've got literally all my first cousins aunts and uncles are uh, other European nationals the um, I set up two offices in the in so where did, where, did your, where did your cross go in then the end, in the end uh, when it finally came to it, I really switched position just before the, re- the referendum I vote, I did vote Brexit in the very end okay but so strong, when you... there are strong arguments for and against Brexit mm. uh, and I could argue I could argue both sides and I certainly did it with a very heavy heart but it's important that we uh, as I said, I think my views are actually irrelevant because the country as a whole has spoken. There was a sure, but when, when you go result. knocking on those doors and you're, obviously, you're talking about local issues, I, I, do, I will, I promise, come, come to some of those later on, but you're in a constituency which was 39 leave, 39.8%, I think, leave, 60.2% remain. And yeah. even if there's people who are saying... Well, yeah, I know, we voted to leave. Um, I don't really want to, but I'm going along with that. You still must have some quite difficult conversations with people. Well, actually, everyone's incredibly polite. There's been very, very few... Well, that's <laughs> South Cambridgeshire for you, isn't it? It's all very it's, nice I, there, I, that's the I thing. I really, really sorry. I think we're a very nice constituency. Um, the... Uh, what I find really interesting is how people's views have uh, mutated over time and uh, I'm literally just based on thousands of conversations on the doorstep. I've found very few people who voted Brexit to have changed their minds, but of the, the people who voted Remain, there's uh, a group, we sort of think that everyone's got strong opinions about Brexit one way or another, but actually there's a lot of people who are uh, in the middle who just say, well, I voted Remain, but actually there was a referendum, we're a democracy, just get on with it. There's a sort of another group who are a bit more hardcore, as it were, who say, well, actually, I don't like the Brexit, don't like the referendum, but I'm now after three and a half years, I'm fed up with it all. Let's just get on and do it. Uh, and then there's a, the sort of the the other sort of more hardcore group as well who just don't want Brexit, don't want to do everything they can mm. possibly to stop it. So I'm not sure if you ask people now. I mean, I've certainly met a lot of people who voted Remain. I, I mean, I've just met so many people who voted Remain who said, "Look, we should just get on with it." So when we when we come out of the other side, um, imagine a world where Boris has gotten his legislation through through the commons what what's on the other side is it um is it a customs union 
is it Norway? Is it Canada? What what does it what does it look like, and what will it what it mean for us all? Really, now do yeah. we do we have to when we go for the sake of argument when we go to Germany on business, maybe even on holiday? Uh, where where are we queuing up in the passport queue? Are we, <laughs> is there going to be something in there which means we still get to go in that blue channel? Well, I, I hope so. Look, I I'm. Clearly, they are our closest trading partners, uh, and you know we go on holiday in Europe. But all the talk and, seems to be about a, a tra- an agreement with the United States, and, and not with not with well, Europe. The, the, well, the, you're right. I mean, everyone's very focused on that because of Donald Trump, etc. But it's the, the clearly the, the first thing we need to agree is the future relationship with Europe. So the the withdrawal agreement we have is just the divorce agreement, and then. That takes us out of the EU, and it's largely standstill in the sense of not that much will change uh, when we finally leave the EU. There, there won't be any tariffs. There won't be, you know, we'll still have the same sort of regime for pharmaceuticals, etc. Uh, the big question is then what happens in the future partnership agreement, which we then have to ne- ne- negotiate. And uh, I am certainly clear that we need uh, a close relate as close a relationship as possible with the uh, EU. They are a major trading partner, as you said. A lot of people sort of from the UK work there, and vice versa. We want, we don't want to sort of put up barriers to people sort of having to, um, you know, wait ages at passport control to go on holiday. So that means you'll be you'll be looking for some. You'd want to seek some sort of a, a agreement, though, or oh, well, to, there, there clearly to, has to, to make be, sure that um, these things agreement. are smooth. Yeah, there clearly has to be an agreement between the UK and uh, the EU. But what we want to do is make sure we don't have a, an agreement. That means we can't then sign trade deals with China, say, just to pick a country that's not America, uh, or indeed other other countries. I mean, the EU hasn't been very good at uh, signing trade deals with other countries because it's very difficult to get 28 different countries in the EU to agree to everything. So it's, a, it's a, very a, difficult it's to a get a parliament to agree. I think. Actually, well, if you, if, if you have a hung parliament, it is it is difficult, and that's the, one of the key decisions in this election is whether you have a majority government or a hung parliament. And part of the trouble we've had over the last eight years is we've actually had a hung parliament. And what if we all, get a hung? What if we? Yeah. I wonder what happens if we get a hung parliament again. Do well, does, does that more, force a second referendum? Perhaps it's it's, it's more chaos. I mean, I mean, if people who just want the end of like political chaos, and what we need is a majority government that can actually decide to do things and can then pass the laws and get them done. If we have a hung parliament, there's basically two scenarios. One is we have another general election. This happened in 1974. We had a February election, which didn't resolve things. We then had an October election. Personally, I can't bear the thought of another general election shortly, and I think most of the people... Well, particularly not before Christmas. Uh, I know, I know. Well, if we'd have another one, please make it when, it, when it's February warm. Or, something. But, uh, or uh, the, the Lib Dems and SNP uh, prop up a Labour uh, government, so, and you get end up with Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. And that's certainly the risk of voting Lib Dem, I'd say, mm. is that actually you get, you know, you might vote Lib Dem, but you end up with uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Because okay. on the condition that there is a then, as you say, a second referendum uh, on the EU. Okay, would you? There's none under no circumstances would you countenance a, a second second referendum, even even on a vote no, our, to, our, uh, to check well, a deal. Our, our, our policy is to get Brexit done. Okay, let's uh, let, let's get Brexit done uh, for now at least, and um, move on to health. Um, where, where do you stand on on the health service? I, I get the the view from looking back, something you wrote in 2001. You were health editor of The Observer. I think this piece I'm quoting from was in The Guide, and I know you'll probably guess which bit I'm going to read out. The very structure of the NHS ensures that we'll never spend enough on health in this country, and it will ensure that far too many patients get appalling treatment. So, does the 50,000 nurses which are being proposed uh, help? So that was, as you say, 20 years ago, I was health editor of The Observer. And one of the interesting things about being the health editor of a newspaper is patients who are desperate and they've, they've 
who have got sicknesses themselves. Uh, they're trying to seek the best treatment. They can't navigate the NHS. They end up phoning uh, medical journalists. So literally every day I'd have patients who uh, were awaiting diagnosis for cancer and not getting treatment or people, patients who had been diagnosed but too late so their cancer had become untreatable. Uh, people who were worried about their children going into hospitals with very high death rates, etc. So I had that bombarding me the whole time. Are you and, saying that skewed uh, your view on, on what, uh, what the opinion was? Well, I, I did go through a sort of crisis of confidence in the NHS, but I've always been absolutely clear it needs more funding. And one thing that's changed... This is 20 years ago, by the way. Uh, one of the things that changed the last 20 years is we, we have well, people, actually, I'm sure there were we, people... You we, know, your equivalent candidate would have been asked in a studio like this, more money for the NHS, 20 well, years ago. Well, I, well, I, and I, now. I said, in that article, <laughs> I said we need more money for the NHS, so that's one of the points I was making. Uh, and w- one of the things we have had in the last 20 years is actually continued investment in the NHS. It's now about 9% of GDP, I think, when I wrote that. It was about 6% of GDP. Uh, and that has made a big difference. And there have been big reforms in the NHS uh, over the last 20 years that have made it uh, a lot more um, uh, patient-centric, as it was. The patients have a lot more information about the the standards in hospitals or different doctors. They have more choice. You have mm-hmm. more choice of which hospital or doctor you get treated by. And that has made the NHS a lot more uh, responsive. But coming back to one of the points that uh, you referred to just there is one of the things that's happening here. I've, I've had very public jobs for about 30 years, 20 years as a journalist and I was in charge of economic development in London, then I was chief executive of the British Bankers Association. I've got 30 years of public record all out there. There have been people trawling all over it to find uh, anything to uh, embarrass me. Uh, w- one journalist complained to me they can't do that with the other two candidates because they've never done... They, they have no... They have, they, yes, they, they, I, they've done no public domain jobs whatsoever. So... Um, and the fact you're going back 20 years to find something slightly embarrassing suggests that uh, there's... Um, you know, the last 20 years has been... Uh, a lot more clean, as it were. Yeah, well, anyway, so, it's, it's, it's kind of yeah. This, this is one, a, of the, I, one of these I, things, I, isn't it? It's like I, the the, f- the future of youth and all their Facebook posts, really, yeah. isn't it? In, uh, do we have a right in, to be in more f- serious do we, do form? Have, well, it, I mean, for young people whose careers get blighted by it, mm. it's uh, it is really you know, it's a really good back, thing. Back to hospitals. The the other element of that is sort of the promise of more money and the you know the will we or will we not get an upgrade for for Addenbrookes? Is it? Is it one of the six, or is it one of the the thirty eight so, where it turns out there's there's money to look into an upgrade, but not actually the money for the upgrade at least yet? So the well, whenever you're doing any investment, first of all you do uh, you, you do the, the business case and the scoping work, and you then um, do the actual major investments, and that's what all businesses and indeed public sector do. So Matt Hancock came here uh, to Adam Brooks about a month ago uh, and announced a nine hundred million pound investment just in Adam Brooks, and part of that was the starting phase for the children. Hospital and the government is absolutely committed to the new to a new children's uh, hospital mm. there. Well, we uh, kind of knew that. Then the, the, the impression there, from what was said that there then, would be more money again. Yeah. Then there's the cancer hospital. So we've got we've done the Royal Papworth. So that's the uh, obviously the heart hospital there, the amazing new uh, hospital, uh, children's hospital next phase, and then after that is the cancer hospital. Uh, and though having specialist hospitals like that enables you to have far better treatment with better survival rates uh, and, and better cure rates than uh, if you're in a, in a general hospital. Mm. And the fear that some people have about a, a privatisation of the NHS, I, I figure it's not going to be, as the headlines seem to suggest, the entire NHS sold off in, in, in one lump. However, if you look at the way that uh, uh, the county council and their social care remit goes, I think of the... The lady over the, lives over the road from me, and she has she has care. And if you go back twenty years, that might have been provided by the council. Now it's provided by a private firm. So that sort of thing could come into the NHS, couldn't it? Well, the the 
I mean, the NHS is not for sale. The NHS, uh, in fact... No, I but little bits of it could be run well, by private companies in the way that, say, prisons have. Well, and, and indeed, that's what Tony Blair did with the NHS. I mean, the, the, um, the NHS has been, I think, around for 71 years, and in 44 of those years, it's been under, conser- under conservative governments, and uh, Labour have spent all their time warning about privatising the NHS because they reckon it goes down well with voters. Uh, but actually... The Conservative government's been more in charge of the NHS for a longer time than Labour, and it's still there. It's universal health care, taxpayer-funded, free at the point of use, and that's what matters. I'm interested in what works, what, how you get the best value for money for, for people providing the best treatments in the, in the, in the best, most customer-friendly way, and that's what, that's what really matters. But the NHS is not for sale. And this is just a... La- I mean, it's, it, it's quite funny here. I think voters are actually getting very cynical about this, that they just say, oh, that's Labour again, saying, oh, that you know, NHS is up for sale, etc., mm. and they're playing this in with the But, but surely Labour do their polling and know that that is something which, you know, the it's public not, are, are, are worried actually, about. But it's actually, it is actually scaremongering. I mean, the, 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 as I said, you've had a Conservative government in charge of the NHS for 44 years. Uh, it, you know, the NHS is still there, uh, better than ever, with universal health care, free at the point of use, taxpayer-funded, you know, whatever your background, rich or poor, you have access to it, and that's the way it should be. Okay. I'd like to talk a bit about uh, transport, because I noticed that you've been uh, campaigning for a bit of a change, or at least for a particular proposal on the East-West Rail, with the idea of a stop at Camborne, which I think a lot of people have been thinking to themselves... Why, why, why is Camborne being cut off here? Um, this presumably would would help solve it. Yeah, I mean, so what, one of the key, the, in fact, I think the key issue when I've been knocking on doors is transport, and the in fact I got stuck in really heavy traffic coming here from. Yeah, we were a little bit nervous, Foxton, but, but please, please, you made it. Sorry, I did make it, but it was really heavy traffic through Shelford. Uh, the um, uh, we've had large, you know, lots of new housing developments, lots of new, more people living here, r- rapidly growing population, and the transport cr- system really is creaking. It's taking a very long time for people to to get around. You say there's too much of a lag time between the houses and, more importantly, the yeah. people going in and the, out, and the infrastructure the, being there to make it. the infrastructure first and then uh, build the housing around it rather mm. than just add to... Uh, if you've got an overstretched roads and public transport you think, system, you think just the, adding um, more housing in there is just going to make it worse. You think the so, Conservatives could have done a better job of running the, the county, uh, the, the well, South I, District Council? I, and I, the, well, I, I, I'm here to yeah. represent the constituents more generally. In it. Um, the, on the east-west rail, so I think it's, as you're right, Camborne, they're getting incredibly frustrated, 11,000 people there, that it takes them as much as an hour and a half to get into Cambridge for work in the morning. Uh, completely understandably. Uh, all it relies on is buses at the moment that also get stuck in traffic. What we need is, uh, so the government has proposed a railway from Oxford to Cambridge. There's two routes, one south through Bassingbourne, the stop at Bassingbourne. Which I think also uh, would be in your constituency it is, yeah, way so successful yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. And there's no, the thing is in Bassingbourne, there's no commuter demand for it. They're very close to Royston. It's a couple of miles away. Uh, and it would be paid for by building 20,000 20, houses on Bassingbourne barracks. Uh, huge, like a whole new town there. And again, that would add a lot more to the the traffic and roads and congestion, and it goes through beautiful empty countryside there. In Camborne, there is commuter demand for it. Uh, they want, most people in Camborne want a train station. Uh, you'll be able to get in very quickly into Cambridge. Uh, so what I've been talking to uh, the Department of Transport and ministers about, I've hosted George Freeman, the Transport Minister, who's making the decision, brought him here, spoken to Number 10, to the Treasury about it, put the route north through Camborne, with a stop at Camborne, uh, not south through Bassingbourne. And I'm confident that if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm elected as a, with a Conservative government, that, that we'll get that decision to go north through with a station at Camborne. Mm. And a station that Adam Books potentially as well, which I know has been yeah. mentioned 
even it's at the Stone gets South. mentioned, yeah. Adam Brooks gets mentioned. And I brought George Freeman, the transport minister responsible to Adam Brooks South last week, uh, showed him the site of it. And there's a uh, clear need there. There's, there's, we're heading towards 20,000 people working on that biomedical campus. I mean, it is you know extraordinarily successful. It's on a global level, uh, um, uh, world-class centre. Uh, but they need to be able to get into work, not just relying on buses that are snarled up in, uh, in, in traffic jams. Mm. So, and clearly it's better if people cycle, more cycleways, etc. Uh, but actually a train station there would make it a lot easier for people to get in and out of there and that would reduce the pressure on the roads. And you mentioned housing connection with Bassingbourne, but I guess right the way across uh, South, South Cambridgeshire and frank- frankly beyond, there is this demand for housing, which curiously always seems to come with, uh, with extra jobs bringing to the area and, and already filling up those, those houses. How, how do you balance the needs for many people, um, house prices which are unaffordable, with needing to put the properties up, um, which whatever the cost ends, ends up being... Uh, at, at the end, then you get the people who say, I don't want any more houses in my village. Yeah. It's nice, it's, I like I we, like it here, and sometimes with very yeah. justifiable reasons. Yeah, so we absolutely need more housing. I mean, I think it's actually a sort of moral obligation on us to provide more housing so that young people can set up homes of their own. And successive uh, governments yeah. always fall behind the targets they, come they up, do. and they're, well, and, and they're never met. building nationally now is at the highest level, I think for I think I'm right in saying for 30 years, it's about 250,000. Mm. I think we, we need to head up to about 300,000, but it's, we're, we're, it is, house building nationally is, uh, is, going, is going well at the moment. The uh, the thing is, in South Cams, we are, I'd say, the best place in Cambridge to live. I mean, it's we, we, it's beautiful countryside, very low unemployment here, uh, lots of jobs, uh, easy countryside to build on. It's not sort of hill, hills and mountains. Good connectivity to Cambridge and London. The trouble we have is that we have three times as much house building in South Cams as the national average for other districts, or about two and a half times. Uh, we have more house building in South Cams district than any other district in East Anglia, than anywhere in Essex or Suffolk or Norfolk uh, or indeed Bedfordshire. We've got more houses is being built in South Cams than we have in, in Cambridge City and Sheffield and Bradford and Brighton. Yeah, but, it, but it's big, maybe big the cities. demands of Cambridge City and the economy here and yeah. the desire to grow it, which yeah. is it causing pressure on, on, on South Cambridgeshire. Yeah. The, the, I think we just need to slow it down a bit and make sure we have infrastructure in place first so that, and also uh, that we've got the environmental resources there. There's a big issue about water, as I'm mm. sure you've covered on the show in the past. No, we, we very, very much so yesterday. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, actually, just rapidly growing the population here without actually having a water supply for them is clearly a big problem and you t- uh, people extract more water and you end up with the rivers. So you're the saying there should be less, less house building to, for South to, Cambridgeshire or, to, or slower? I think slow it down uh, and make sure that we've uh, got the infrastructure and the environmental mm. resources. Are, are there any place, you'd put a, a, a stop so to one, now? You, so you potentially Bassingbourne, from what your, your comments earlier. Well, you the, wouldn't the want to see... Barrack, having 20,000 homes at Bassingbourne, Bassingbourne Barracks is a complete no-no. I mean, that is such a big... Uh, you know, you're talking about a, a town of 30,000, 40,000 mm. people there. There's small roads around there. Uh, it would have a devastating impact on the villages uh, nearby, not least Bassingbourne itself. Uh, you should build on... Uh, I mean, you should build on brown, brown sites. I think places like uh, you know Northstow, etc., is good. Uh, uh, Bourne Airfield. What uh, protect the green belt though? Really uh, resist building on the green belt, and don't uh, 
uh, overwhelm existing communities. So the one that I've been very strongly opposed is very close to my heart, part of the constituency I know particularly well, uh, Foxton. There's proposals to build Foxton, Newtown, 1,800 houses uh, between Shepworth, Barrington and Foxton. And conveniently already with a station, of course. Well, it, well that's why they're proposing there, mm. because there's a station. Uh, but basically those three villages would become subsumed into a new town. Now, most people who live in villages live there because they like village life. <laughs> they don't want to live in a town with all that comes with that. Uh, but also, although there is a station there, a lot of those people would drive and if you know that part the A10 there is already uh, I mean it's almost a permanent sort of traffic jam uh, and particularly in the rush hour so adding another 1800 houses there would make it far far worse so that's the sort of development we shouldn't have that transforms village life into towns and actually adds to congestion for already overstretched roads we need to protect the rural landscape protect the, uh, the, the, the country environment that we have but and I think there's room for more infilling within villages. There's clearly you know some villages where you can add bits of homes, and that's 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 happening. And then brownfield development. We, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, some of your time as a journalist and people, probably like me and others, just going through and just seeing and seeing seeing what they can find. D- does it worry you the way some of what you've said? You know, there's the Spectator one you would have heard uh, with regards to not letting terrorists in, the government's policy, mass migration, especially from the third world, will claim the most lives, but through letting in too many germs. That's what... I I wonder... You've apologised, I know, for that, but I wondered at what point you thought, made a mistake there. Well, I... It's funny, somebody stopped me on the street yesterday saying, oh, I just voted for you, post, postal vote. And he yeah. said, oh, some people having a pop at you at The Spectator. But if you didn't write things for The Spectator that wasn't punchy, they wouldn't print it. I mean, as a, as a journalist, your your job is, part of your job is to be thought-provoking. And, you know, I, I'm not a career politician. But I there's thought-provoking and there's insulting as well, isn't there? I didn't lead my life to uh, to be thinking, right, I've got to, I'm going to be a politician. Mm. Um as a journalist, I was thought-provoking. I mean, I have covered this sort of endlessly. I'm sure. I mean, the key issue in that article, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've read the article, but it's. It, I've, I've read, yeah, I've read, I've read this one. The, yes. the issue there that I was writing about was about medical screening and immigration. Like America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand—they do uh, health checks as part of the immigration process. We don't in the UK, and the, in fact, as a result of that article, the government set up a, a task force to investigate this. And then brought in some uh, some forms of checks. And so, stuff. do you, so do you think so, these these quotes, I, no, no, which the, are being quoted, la- quoting out of context, or the language was the language was provocative, right? Yeah, yeah. and, and I've, I've apologised. I'm. I am totally, and anyone who knows me, uh, and my. I just, know, just wondering if I'm completely committed against, you know, against racism, against discrimination, against bigotry and other forms. And I want, when I said at the beginning of the interview, I'm a one nation conservative. I want, I want a society where everyone feels welcome, where uh, which is open and tolerant, that everyone who's here feels comfortable being here. I'm pro-immigration mm. in principle, um, as it happens. I'm from a, a family of immigrants. I'm the son of an immigrant. Yeah. I'm the husband of immigrant. Uh, and uh, the. I'm I'm very internationalist and immigration has brought great strengths but it's got to be controlled immigration where the government has control over the borders and the people who come here uh, are here but I, I do I do wonder there was the case there was the Radio Norfolk presenter a guy called Nick Conrad um, and he when he was on the radio in 2014 he made some fairly unpalatable comments about a rape case he was thrown out in the Broadland constituency and another another candidate for a very safe conservative seat was 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 brought in. I, I I just wonder if you kind of feel that you've dodged a bullet in a in a, in a way, or or. I mean, what, what this is. I mean, you're talking about an article that's nearly twenty years twenty years ago, and mm. uh, you know, I apologise for um, 
I think first about 12 years ago or 15 years ago. I can't remember the details. I mean, it is, uh, more and did you apologise because ago. somebody, a journalist, said, oh, you shouldn't be saying this sort of thing? Or what, what were the circumstances that led to that first apology? It was when I was uh, starting to, when I was appointed to work for the, the, the Mayor of London and I had a... Um, I came in front of the London Assembly at the time, mm. and the, the Labour people there, and we, we talked about it all then. And actually, they got to know me. Working for the Greater London Authority, I have a statutory duty to promote diversity, uh, and um, uh, and you know, and I performed that function very, very well. And we had all the Labour people there scrutinising everything I did. Uh, and, th- and this and this comes back to the point uh, that I made earlier that actually, if you're going back twenty years to try and find something that's slightly embarrassing, that's just the last twenty years of my life have been exemplary. I mean, it's all been in the public domain. And nobody's asking me about the things I did when I was in charge of economic development in London. You know, I, I, I initiated infrastructure projects there that really helped improving the lives of London people. I did welfare-to-work programmes there. I had a whole load of... Biz- I had a budget of about a billion pounds uh, helping small businesses uh, and medium-sized businesses in London. And then when I ran the British Bankers Association, I was in charge of the uh, negotiations with the banking industry in the wake of the financial crisis, uh, making sure the banking industry never, ever get bailed out again by taxpayers' money, and also served uh, customers properly rather than mis-selling to them. And mm. I led all those negotiations. And, what, and one of the things that's actually come up uh, on the doorsteps here is access to banking services and ATMs. And I'm shocked that uh, in South Cambridgeshire, I think I'm right in saying, there is not a single uh, bank branch in the constituency. There's one inside and certainly, certainly fewer than yeah. they and used to be. And there's very sure. few ATM machines. And I, did, I led the negotiations on all the, uh, between the post office and all the banks uh, so that you could prov- get your banking services, whichever one of the main banks you're with, through the uh, post office. Uh, and certainly that is being very helpful for people now. So in Shelford, for example, there's a big issue, as in other places, but it's in particularly current in Shelford, uh, they've gone from four ATM machines to zero uh, in quite a short space. Helped by a few Ram Raiders as well along the well, way. <laughs> yeah, no, they have. I mean, there's the particular circumstances behind we, it. We better wrap things up. Um, Anthony, thank you very much uh, for your time this morning. I better remind everybody uh, that there are three candidates standing in South Cambridge: Anthony Brown uh, from the Conservatives, who we've been hearing from there; uh, Dan Grief for Labour, he's in on Friday; and Ian Solomon for the Lib Dems, who'll be with us next Wednesday. Uh, tomorrow, also. So a Lib Dem, it's going to be Rod Cantrell, who is standing uh, in Cambridge City for the Lib Dems. Uh, Thank you very much to Anthony Brown. Uh, Thank you for you for listening. Uh, Susie Thorpe is next.